0: Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast is sponsored by Who's Your Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Hoosier Your Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity and social media management to promote your band, album or event. Visit the team on social media at yourdevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. The Sparta Flash! Blake Williams is best known as a bluegrass boy, but one that witnessed the final days of his band leader, the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. Wrote stories from the last days of the first generation of bluegrass creators and Blake's early years growing up in Sparta, Tennessee, the home of legendary Lester Flatt, make for a must-hear history of this music. Blake Williams is a veteran of the road and stage. We will hear great stories of the life of an excellent banjo player and a fine man. Join Daniel and Blake Williams backstage at the Southern Ohio Indoor Music Festival for this episode of Walls of Time.
1: The Sparta Flash. There you go. That's where it all started, right? Sparta, Tennessee?
2: Sparta, Tennessee, the hometown of Lester Flat, Benny Martin, Josh Swift. We got a bunch of bluegrassers that uh, call Sparta home. I don't know where the Sparta Flash came from, except probably Wayne Lewis suggested that to Bill Monroe during an introduction at some festival and it stuck. But uh, Tater Tate used to laugh and say, the reason they call him the Sparta Flash is because he only gets in a hurry when lightning flashes. So that that's probably <laughs> that's probably the most accurate uh, depiction of that.
1: Being from a town like Sparta, where as you mentioned, a, a lot of bluegrass greats hail from from that city, how did that legacy of Sparta impact you growing up uh, musically in the, Tre- the form in your formative years?
2: Tremendously. Uh, My dad ran a general store called Sparta Feed Store that was right downtown Sparta, and these were the days when everybody came to town and shopped on Saturdays, and everybody knew one another, and it was a cool time. Uh, We had a local theater there where uh, Lester and Gladys actually went to see Bonnie and Clyde when it first came out. Uh, We had a local radio station there that had two bluegrass shows a week when I was growing up, But I was 85 miles from the Grand Ole Opry. I was uh, privy to that Nashville music and Hee Haw, the Porter Wagner Show, and all those great country music shows out of Nashville. And as a small child, I actually sat in a chair and watched the Martha White TV shows with Flat Scruggs. I was born in 56, and in 1969, I became interested in playing the banjo at 13 and what uh,
1: what sparked that interest of the banjo in particular my
2: dad started trading on instruments in his general store and he got a really good gibson master tone banjo an rb 250 model from the 50s and when i ran my hand across it one day it just it just spoke to me i said "I, i want to learn how to play this and at that time you basically could find some tablature but you, it was mostly uh, as one guy said, it's, uh, "Learn to play by the Bible, seek and you shall find." Yeah, <laughs> you get you a flattens scruggs record, slow it down, and, and just try to try to pick it out and, and watch people. But the impact it had on me is Lester Flat, Bill Monroe, the Osborne Brothers, Jim and Jesse's—all those great acts from that era were on major labels in Nashville, and they were being played right alongside the great country artists of that time. So it was more mainstream. And so it was just a, a, a general thing for me to be attracted to it at that time because I was so immersed in it in that small town.
1: So you couldn't escape it if you wanted to growing up
2: around. Not really. It was, all, it was everywhere.
1: Being from the hometown of Lester Flat, how significant was it for you when you had the opportunity to work with
2: Lester? My first professional gig was with a gentleman named Bobby Smith and the boys from Shiloh. And Bobby was a bluegrass boy probably in the early 60s. I went to work with Bobby when I was 17, and uh, that put me right at the forefront of the festival scene because in the early 70s, when you went to a festival, you saw Lester Flatt and Bill Monroe and Don Reno and and Ralph Stanley and Jimmy Martin and Osborne Brothers because those those mainstream acts that we talked about were playing all the festivals. There was there wasn't any filler on the stage. It was all those acts, and so I became friends with those people at a very early age. And uh, I told Lester, I said, you know, I would really like the opportunity to play banjo with you sometime if it ever presents itself. And um, I try to tell young musicians, you need to be proactive. You need to network with people, communicate with people, and let your interests be known. And Lester laughed at the time, and he said, well, I've got two banjo pickers right now. I've got Kenny Ingram and Jack Hicks in the band, and laughed. But Kenny became uh, sick, and I think he might have had the flu, and this would have been in 1976. Paul Warren was not in good shape. Benny Martin was playing in Flats' band at that time to help fill in with Paul. And they needed a sub, and Benny told Lester he said, "Won't you give Blake a call and, and let him pick? He's a good picker, so I got to go <laughs> out with Benny Martin and Lester Flat and Curly Seckler and Marty Stewart, Charlie Nixon, and Pete Corm, and fill in and Of course, Lester and I just hit it off and and loved each other's sense of humor and When Kenny left to go with Jimmy Martin uh the second time, then Lester gave me a uh, you know, a chance to play with him. Unfortunately, this was in about the first week in June of 1978. We toured the rest of that year, and then in Lester's declining health, we didn't play any uh, in 1979 except for one Grand Ole Opry show, and, of course, he passed away in May of 79. So it was a very short tenure, but I was blessed at a, as a young man to, to get that opportunity.
1: Did that spark a kinship? Did, did did that hang in the back of your mind a little bit?
2: I don't know uh, if that had a, a lot to do with it. Uh, and quite honestly, my style of banjo playing was a little more melodic than, than, than Scruggs-style picking. There were some guys probably better suited to play the Scruggs-style banjo in Lester's band because it was a banjo-dominated band, and I was very young. But I think that the the relationship that Lester and I had struck, and from knowing a few people in Lester's camp, knowing some of his family. In fact, the, uh, Everett Burke, that actually discovered flattens grugs, was a salesman for Martha White Flower and actually took the idea to Cohen Williams, the president of the company. He said, "I think these boys can sell you a lot of flour." That same guy was a was a salesman at my dad's store, so there was there was quite a few relationships there. That, uh, but uh, I think Lester just you know he said he can get the job done, and he's a pretty good old boy, so I'll try it. You know,
1: you mentioned that your banjo playing was a little bit more melodic at that time. Who were some of your influences that kind of shifted your uh, your vision a little bit?
2: When I started out, Carl Jackson. Uh, I love Jack Hicks is playing. I studied Larry McNeely's playing some Doug Dillard, Bobby Thompson. Um, now I, I never was probably the best fiddle tune banjo player. I give people like Butch Robbins and, and, uh, and Big uh, Jordan and some of those guys that they, they really played great melodic fiddle uh banjo playing. But at the time that I worked with Lester, I was, I was, I was a little bit in between those two, I think. It served me well when I went to work with Bill Monroe in 1981 because that was a fiddle dominated band. And I, I could fit in with that supportive role and the backup that was needed in that band. And uh, Bill had just released the Master of Bluegrass album, which was a really intricate, complex album. And um, so I had to work really hard to get up to speed on some of that. But uh, Bob Black, he's another guy that played some really good uh, 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 fiddle-tune banjo. But with Lester, uh, you know, Kenny Ingram was a great Scruggs player. Charlie Cushman is one of the greatest Scruggs players. There were a lot of guys that played that style specifically and studied that. But I guess I more or less tried to fit into several different camps as I was you know, learning
1: that had to serve you well when you went to work with Munro, considering you're filling the shoes of, you know, Earl Scruggs and Bill Keith to be able to to really ride that fence and and have a foot in both camps. Had, Monroe had to be really tickled about that.
2: You know, to have been on stage with Kenny Baker was awesome because Kenny Baker's long, bowl, smooth, double stop fiddle playing is unlike almost anybody you'll ever want to see or hear. So I was thankful I got to, to play during those years. Uh, Monroe was extremely creative. He was writing tunes all the time, mostly for the fiddle. You'd have to steal a banjo tune here and there. He would get his mandolin out of the case, and wherever his hands fell, he would start writing a tune. And in the days before iPhones and, you know, digital recorders and stuff, these tunes were forgotten unless we were backstage when he was warming up and happened to learn the tune. Or if he played it a few more times and brought it backstage for a rehearsal at the Opry or whatever, most of the time, a majority of those tunes just got away. One instance of that was a tune called uh, uh, Sugarloaf Mountain. He wrote it up in the Northeast and I was backstage when he wrote it, and it had sort of a Clinch Mountain back kind of tone to it, and it, it, it fell really good for the banjo. And he played it that night on the show, and I think we were probably in Vermont or somewhere up there. He asked the audience for a name, and they said Sugarloaf Mountain. Oh, that's a powerful title, so... <laughs> When Emory Gordy was recording Southern Flavor, we had the record finished, and he said, we need a banjo tune. So I remembered that and started playing it, and Bill looked at me, and he said, "Uh, whose number is that right there? And I said, well, it's yours. Oh, oh, that's powerful right there. So that's how it ended up, you know, as a title cut of the album. Um, You know, I think Bill Monroe, after Earl Scruggs left, I don't think he ever wanted a banjo player to have too much uh, credit in a band. So he had a lot of banjo pickers he really liked were playing. Rudy Lyles, and he he would name through players that he really liked. But I don't think he wanted to give a banjo player too much credit because he didn't want to lose them like he did Earl. Because Earl had a lot of attention and actually shared billing with Bill, yeah. you know. And so uh, it was more about trying to play the melody. That's the one thing Bill wanted. He was a stickler for playing the melody of a tune and uh, let it speak for itself. How do
1: you think Munro's love for the fiddle, you mentioned how many fiddle tunes he wrote, how do you think his love for the fiddle, dating all the way back to as a child, hanging around his Uncle Penn, how, how did that influence uh, not only his mandolin playing, but just his musical vision in general?
2: I think that uh, Uncle Penn played a big role in, in his love for the fiddle. He used to say that when, when Charlie and Birch uh, started playing music. That one of them played the guitar and one of them played the fiddle, and, and he played the mandolin because that was all that was left. I heard him say that many times, but it was obvious he loved the old fiddle players. He'd mentioned Clayton McMitchin and some of those uh, people on the early days of the Opry, and and uh, it was just it was just in him to love fiddle tunes. You know, he recorded that tribute album to Uncle Pen, which was all fiddle, and uh, Kenny Baker when he did Kenny Baker plays bill monroe kenny had his uh, musicians all lined up to do that session and bill had got wind that kenny was recording and he just showed up at the studio and kenny said that he he was sort of like why didn't you ask me to play yeah and he said i didn't think you'd want to and then monroe played on the whole record yeah but he he just he just loved fiddle playing he loved fiddle tunes he loved that uh cadence and the the melody of a fiddle tune and so that's just that's where his heart lies
3: do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self journal from best self co Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. And now, back to Walls of Time.
1: All right, so this is going to be toughy. Compare and contrast working for Lester, working for Bill. What, what were some of the, the, the similarities and differences in, in their roles as band leaders?
2: Lester Flat called it a show. You know, he had a part where he would imitate Roy Acuff in the show, which was funny to me because it sounded like Roy Acuff introdu- uh, uh, imitating Lester Flat. <laughs> but he called it a show. I think that he viewed his music a little maybe more with a country flavor to it than, than calling it bluegrass. Uh, he was a very funny guy. He had a real dry sense of humor. Uh, he had a nickname for people. He loved to laugh. Uh, he had a real laid back demeanor. Bill Monroe was a taskmaster. He was in control. He was in charge. He knew that you had to let the band know that it was him running the band and nobody else. And, and, and he, if he got in a studio, he had certain things he wanted done, certain things he didn't want done. Uh, Bill Monroe was a showman in the sense that he had this huge stage presence. But he also let the music speak for itself. It wasn't about a whole lot of joke telling or smiling or cutting up or trying to do anybody else's music. It was uh, it was uh, strictly trying to define what he loved, what he had created, and keeping it, I think, in a certain area. I heard him say he didn't want any uh, uh, swing influences coming into his music and, and he, he wanted it to, to stay within that genre after it got developed I think yeah but uh Bill Monroe uh, was harder on fiddle players because like I say it was a fiddle dominated band he expected people to do things a certain way I got along with him pretty good because I understood the rules and I didn't have any trouble you know staying within those boundaries what,
1: what were some of his rules
2: um he wanted you dress nice he wanted you to make sure that hat was sharp he wanted you to be on time he wanted you to play the melody and when you got through playing a break you didn't go ahead and and play a couple of bars to fill in he said when you get through with your break it's time for me to sing you know it, it was it was formatted it was focused it didn't have sometimes as much speed as a lot of young people think, but there was a, there each tune had its own precise rhythm and feel that was strictly a Monroe thing. It it was amazing. He could go to the, the, the station in or whatever and get up on stage with just anybody and almost transform them, transform all of those guys into his sound just because he, he had such great timing with his mandolin. He pulled such great tone. He wasn't always in tune. In fact, the old mandolin that's so famous of his uh, noted sharp and had some wonky tuning things to it, but he could almost make it sound in tune even when it was out. It was pretty amazing what he could do as far as, as pulling tone. and And sometimes when we were singing a quartet number, if he was singing tenor, it was almost like he was leading us. He was almost pushing that beat to where he was still leading. Yeah. So it was a, it was a very unique uh, uh, sound that Bill Monroe got and and uh, still is to this day.
1: Being a young man and spending time with with just absolute giants like Lester Flat Monroe, Benny Martin, Kenny Baker, Curly Seckler, how did that impact your perspective uh, of this mu- music and your own? you know, musical formation.
2: Well, I feel I feel extremely blessed that I got to roam the halls of the Grand Ole Opry for 21 years when the Hall of Famers were still there. You know, Minnie and Grandpa and Little Jimmy Dickens and Porter and all of those guys were there, and I was there every weekend. And they knew me, and I knew them, and we told stories. And those guys were raised in cars and limousines on state roads before interstates, and they traveled in caravans, and they laughed and they cut up and they told stories about each other. And today, it's very likely the star will be on a bus by himself.
1: It's very—it's a lot more isolated. It's it, not as community-driven. It doesn't seem.
2: It's isolated, and that's what's happening at the Grand Ole Opry today. It's been transformed more into a concert type. Hall instead of the original format of a radio show. Now, it still is a radio show, one of the longest running, but I'm saying they had to approach it differently because of the changing times, because of the fact that there's so many things that people can do to be entertained these days, they had to sort of rethink the way they did it. For example, when I was playing with Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt, there was most of the time two shows on Friday and two shows on Saturday. Nowadays, more likely than not, there's only one show and it's only two hours long. What you had then was a guy would show up for his 7.30 spot and then he would have to hang around back there for a couple, three hours for his second show. Man, there was picking and jamming and joke telling and cutting up. And, you know, Hoot Hester would walk in and, and kick off a Western Swing number and Patty Loveless would walk in and start singing on it and Connie Smith would sing harmony. Nowadays bad has been taken away because they come in and do their two songs or the spot they dress up they leave so I was blessed to be a part of that and also I've got a real appreciation for how hard it was in those days to travel and what perseverance it took you know Sonny and Bobby Osborne will tell you they nearly starved to death before they got a toho and then they was one of our biggest stars and and crossed over into country with with a lot of their records. But they came up, these old-timers came up with harmony structures and quartets and fantastic arrangements of fiddle tunes all under the toughest of circumstances. And at any festival you go to, you're going to see the result of that work today. And I think that what affects me the most nowadays is I reflect on being a part of somebody that actually created it. Yeah, absolutely. Not just the music, but created the sound, you know. So I'm blessed with that. Uh, Talking about Lester, though, having a sense of humor, there's a sound man in North Carolina told me a few years ago that he was such a big Lester Flat fan, and they had a little local group, and they were opening the show for Lester. And he said, I looked off to the end of the stage, and there was Lester with that hat cocked to the side, but scarf tie and just looked like a grand old opera star you know so he said i decided to try to impress him i'd sing one of lester's songs and so he let her rip he got through with the show and he came off and he said lester i'm so glad to meet you i've been a big fan for years he said "Uh, did you hear that song of yours i just said yeah i did he said well what did you think he said well you're standing too close to the mic he said, really? How far away should I get? He said, Do you have a car? <laughs> Lester always did came from you sideways on the humor, yeah. you know. <laughs> Bill never did really do a whole lot of that. Uh he he liked to laugh, but but he wasn't the kind of guy that, that would, would come up with jokes or anything like that. But uh uh Lester and Bill had such a wonderful history too uh bill told me one time that when lester him wrote uh little cabin home on the hill that bill said that he went to the publishing company to get lester in advance and he said he got him twenty five hundred dollars in the 40s and he said lester thought that was more money than there was in the whole wide world you know and then lester told me one time they were traveling some horn stopped at a little diner and they were sitting at this counter and he said somebody put some money in the jukebox. And he said I just got off the stool and danced all around Bill till the song was over. And then when it was over, I got back up on the stool and sat back down. And he said Bill never even cracked a smile. <laughs> but those guys, man, you know they—you just think about Lester and Chubby and Earl and Cedric and and those guys, uh, and that and the audience is going nuts and the tent shows and the baseball and. Everything that went with that in the 40s was just, Bill said people would line the streets in little towns just to try to get a glimpse of him because they'd only heard him on the radio. They didn't even know what he looked like.
1: How did uh, did Lester and Munro's reflections and, and memories of, about that 45-46 band differ, and how were they the same?
2: You know, I don't recall having a conversation with Lester about those days, and I'm sorry that I didn't. Uh, A couple of observations from Bill's standpoint, Uh, Bill said that he made more money in 1945 than that he did in any other year. And that was from going out at a quarter or 50 cents a head and just filling up tents night after night, you know. Um, Another thing about that I remember is Bill told me that that Lester and Earl turned in their notice. And after the two weeks was up, Lester showed up when they were getting ready to leave and and, uh, got in the car or the bus or whatever it was they were traveling in. And nobody said anything to Lester. And he said, well, I guess uh, if nobody's going to ask me to stay, I'll just go on. Bill's take on that was that Lester was scared to leave, didn't really want to, but he did. And uh, once you gave your notice to Bill, there wasn't no going back. So he wouldn't have asked him to stay. But I thought that was always interesting. But um, I, I, that's about the only two reflections that I remember that, that Bill uh, commented on those actual years. When people would ask him if if Earl Scruggs was a greatest banjo picker that ever played with him. He would, he would he would answer that by saying, I had a lot of great banjo pickers, you know. But uh, I know that Earl said those were some tough years, that, you know, money for the Bluegrass Boys probably wasn't all that great in the 40s, and, and they saw how much everybody was making, and they was working so much. Uh, there was a requirement in those days that, that the Opry Star had to... Uh, be on the Opry, I think, 26 appearances each year on Saturday night. And if the band, if it was inconvenient for the band to be with Bill, sometimes he would come back and and have to do the show by himself uh, and pick up some pickers to do it. But uh, for the most part, it it was a real grind working in a a Cadillac uh, limousine probably with a bass on top.
1: Did Bill ever comment about what it meant to him? When Lester and Earl left and found success,
2: no, I, I never did hear him t- talk about that. History will show that from from the commentary from from the, his actions that it hurt him pretty bad. Uh, obviously, they were huge stars themselves. I tell a lot of people now when they get discouraged because a band member leaves, I say, "Well, you know, you'll get through it because you know Lester and Earl left Monroe and he survived." So, yeah. I I think it hurt him. I think it probably um, made him less inclined to share the spotlight to that degree again. Uh, I know one time when he was playing one of his uh, mandolins that Gibson had built for him in the 80s, he had taken it on a road trip to Branson. We were playing a theater out there. And uh, somewhere in the show, somebody from the audience just hollered out, let the banjo picker, turn the banjo picker loose. And Bill heard him and stopped and lifted his mandolin off his shoulder and said, have y'all seen my new mandolin? <laughs> so, you know, I sort of thought, you know, he's remembering Earl Scruggs right here, I think. Yeah. You know, but that's just what I think. I never heard him actually say that. But uh,
1: With the way Munro was, was so driven and knowing his, his upbringing and, and always feeling like an outsider and always feeling like it seemed to me he always felt like he had to prove himself. Do you think that that the lesser and Earl even kind of fueled that desire and that passion even more?
2: I think, I think as a as a young child, Bill Monroe, he said his eyes were he called them cross eyed. To the point that he was so self conscious that when company came, he would he would go under the front porch and hide. Um, I think he maybe was mistreated because of his shyness. I think. It built up a resolve and a toughness in him. He told me that when he was 16 years old, he was hauling telephone poles out of the woods with a a team of mules in a wagon, and he was loading those poles by himself, driving them out of there. He was so physically strong and mentally tough that he just believed that he could do anything and nobody was going to get in the way of it. Uh... Talking about his physical health in the 80s, I heard him say one time, it's going to take something powerful to get me down. He, he had such a strong willpower. And I think that came from, from, from tough early years, losing his parents in an early age. A whole lot of things played into that. He was never afraid of hard labor. In fact, he he enjoyed it. He loved working with mules. He loved working hard. Um. So there was a there was something built into him that he wouldn't give up and it served him well uh when Elvis came along because he he had some tough times in the 50s and until the the festival thing started I'll tell you something else he uh he said one time that a lot of people up there in Kentucky where where he was from he said I can make more money in a day than a lot of those people can make in a year And you got to remember too uh, Bill Monroe was born in, I think, 1911. In those days, a musician was sort of frowned upon. So I think he felt like he had to work extra hard to prove himself. You know, he had to prove how hard it's almost like he didn't want to do something the easy way. You know, I never heard him complain about traveling, no matter what mode of transportation. I don't care if the bus broke down and we were in a Volkswagen. He never complained about the travel, he was just tough strong and and i'm sure a lot of that came from his early childhood
1: your time with munro was after bluegrass had kind of established itself as a as a genre how do you think he wore the mantle and wore the title of the the father of bluegrass he loved
2: it he loved it bobby hicks told me one time that when he was playing with bill in the 50s that bill would allow bobby to experiment with his fiddle playing and I sort of thought in my mind in those days when, when bluegrass was, was in its formative years and Bill was recording and trying and experimenting and creating, that he allowed a little more of that to come in from each bluegrass boy that came and went. I think he took part of that with him as the music went along. I think when Ralph Rensler did all the great work for the Smithsonian and, and the festival scene started, Bill got a resurgence in popularity and in money and prestige and was actually titled The Father of Bluegrass Music. I sort of feel like he tried to, at that point, uh, as I said earlier, try to keep it into the confines that it was in, that it would be specific, it would be an original art form. And he he would say, I've, I'm proud that I've created Bluegrass Music. I mean, he wore that mantle, he loved that.
1: So you think that he understood the weight of what a title like that. Absolutely. He understood that he was pointed to as the only person in American history who single-handedly created a genre of music.
2: He said that him and Colonel Sanders had done more for the state of Kentucky than any two men. So (laughs) so that tells me that he understood Plus, you know, I went on some European tours with him, that involved artists like George Jones and Jerry Lee Lewis and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and and people like that and 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 he would just those crowds would go nuts over him. We'd go to Japan and they would be waiting for us when we landed, you know, and and taking his pictures at the airports. And he he understood that this was a worldwide. He was a worldwide star. Yeah, and he was always pitching a song. We stopped in Las Vegas one time, and just on a whim, we went into the MGM Grand, and Bill said he would like to see Ray Charles. And we just said we got Bill Monroe from the Grand Ole Opry. He'd like to see Ray Charles. And pretty soon, we're being led through the tunnels of the MGM Grand, and Ray Charles comes walking toward us singing Blue Moon of Kentucky. (laughs) And we go in this dressing room that's just decked out with flowers and food and drinks and everything else, and Bill Monroe pitches him a song. And he sang, they sing together, and 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 thirty minutes we were back on the bus, and I thought I just you know, went through the <laughs> twilight zone. Yeah,
1: like what just happened? Yeah,
2: Johnny Cash. I saw those two men in the same room recording together on Bill Monroe and Friends, and it was like it was like two big old bulls in that room. You could feel that presence between presence between those two men, but any star you were around was was either affected by his catalog or his music or they listened to him growing up i mean for crying out loud paul mccartney recording bloom in kentucky and and elvis uh, anybody that was around bill monroe was in awe of bill monroe it was an amazing thing to to watch
1: what had to be very unique is cuz you know when you look at art in general, they usually say artists aren't appreciated till after they're gone. Monroe was not like that. You know, when you look at someone that creates a movement, whether it be political or musical, rarely do they get to see not only it come to fruition, but then see generations afterwards carry that on. As he grew into the role of the father of bluegrass, how do you think that some of the decisions he made while carrying that mantle, while, while he was your boss, how do you think that some of the decisions he made impacted the future of Bluegrass? And he knew that was happening on purpose.
2: I don't know. You know, they tried a, <clears throat> a Bluegrass Hall of Fame and they, they tried some nightclubs. clubs. They, they tried promoting some festivals. Uh, Bill would, would go over in North Carolina and pick a spot and have a show and maybe be a complete success or complete failure uh he was uh involved in starting some some big festivals uh he was involved in the early days of norco california of hugo oklahoma of course you know about bean blossom but uh, he did a he did a show in jackson kentucky i mean he he started a lot of festivals i think that was one way he thought he could spread the music i think that it also helped that when his management was uh, Buddy Lee Attractions in Nashville, they also was trying to put him in in arenas, where, it would bring people from other genres in. You know, like Willie Nelson's Farm Aid, or doing that that album with with country stars.
1: That's the one with with Cash that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. They do. I still miss some one.
2: Yeah, on and and that was a real bizarre cut. I think that that Bill was a little bit nervous about recording with Johnny because he knew Johnny. Had such a low, deep voice. Yeah, and and Bill was used to singing with lead singers that yeah. high, and so in that instance, he asked Johnny what he thought they could do. And Johnny, it was Johnny's idea to cut that song, but it ended up with Bill almost singing sort of a, a high lead or something with Johnny, which was it's a little different. It's different.
1: It's the only that's the only non-Monroe cut on that album. Yeah, yeah.
2: But Willie Nelson came in, and because he was from Texas, Bill thought "Goodbye, Old Pal," you know, would right. be great for Willie. And I'm I'm I may be mistaken, but I think that Bill had it in B flat, and Willie capoed up, took his break, kicked it off, or whatever, in one pass, sang his part in one pass, and was done. And it just blew me away, you know. <laughs> but to see Bill with Waylon Jennings and people like that, it was just it was, it was pretty awesome.
1: You mentioned the camaraderie that Bill had with the country stars, particularly. Due to, of course, him being such a prominent figure in the growth of the Opry. How do you think that that communal aspect of the Opry, that communal nature, and the way that those older country stars and older Opry stars didn't view a distinction musically between the music they were making and the music Bill was making... Lester and Earl were making, it was just bluegrass and country. They didn't see any distinct lines, it it seems, at least at the Opry. How do you think that impacted both genres by not having those distinct lines drawn at the Opry at that time?
2: I think think we're talking about an era where people became stars on the radio. And don't underestimate that power. I've thought about this a lot. If you had a 15-minute radio show every day or once a week, That was your means for survival in the music business. It also taught you that you had to sell something in that 15 minutes. You had to do material that would connect with a radio audience that you can't even see in that 15 minutes. You had time restraints that you had to meet in that 15 minutes. And you were trying to be positive and inspiring and put your personality through a microphone that nobody gets today. You see what I'm saying? The musicians of, of our era today are incredibly talented, incredibly educated and sophisticated, but nine times out of 10, they're not making the connection with the audience that those old radio guys did. Yeah. Am I making myself clear? Absolutely. So, I think that the Grand Ole Opry was a means to an end. Bill Monroe wanted on a 50,000-watt station so he could get a larger touring uh, radius. Plus, it afforded him a lifelong membership in something. That was huge. So I think those guys respected one another, in fact, that they all had earned their way, they had all paid their dues, they all were there to try to accomplish the same kind of things. And I think when the division finally came, it was just Nashville trying to drive the demographic of the, the record-buying consumer downward. And so it became infused more with pop music and more with rock music. And uh, that sort of pushed bluegrass to the side because bluegrass stayed true to authentic acoustic sounds and songs that had a message and a story and in many cases gospel music. So I think that's when the the division started.
1: Why do you think that bluegrass was able to, for the most part, retain its closeness to its origins and its roots more so than country music? Aside from you know, aside from the the talking heads and the, and the business aspect, um, what about bluegrass in particular makes it so? I mean, regardless of what people want to say. Bluegrass today, even progressive bluegrass, is closer to its roots than the pop country is to Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers.
2: I think that uh, if you if you if you push aside uh, making music just purely for money, and you go back to making music for its purest art form and its feeling, uh, I think that that bluegrass has got an, an essence about it that well, let's just say that they're some of the best musicians in the world. But it's going to always have to have the creative side to grow. Can you imagine what it was like on December 6th in 1945 when the Grand Ole Opry audience had been hearing String Bing play a two-finger style banjo playing? And the band that was on right before him was probably playing a mountain style clawhammer fiddle tune with just, just a, a fiddle, fiddle band, probably. When Earl Scruggs walked out there playing a three finger banjo role, it probably sounded like rock and roll to those. Yeah,
1: guys. absolutely. It garnered a reaction from the audience that was just the exact same reaction that Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis would garner from audiences, you know, 10 years it's later. Down in Memphis, yeah. Yeah, and, and 10 years later.
2: But, you know, the, the great thing about what Earl did is, is so amazing to me is is that after all these years, all over the world, people are trying to do what Earl Scruggs did. And there's there's the amazing thing. Uh, I was involved with a, a Bluegrass Boy reunion over in Merlefest a few years ago that Earl was a part of. And uh, the night before we got together and we were just jamming, you know. And I was watching him pretty close. And he, he went up and did a little thing up about the 12th fret of his banjo neck and it, it, was a, it was a syncopation that was just so fresh and clean and different to me. And when we got through, I said, you know, what did you do? And he said, I don't know. Glenn Duncan said it the best. Earl Scruggs could not help but be Earl Scruggs, and Bill Monroe could not help but be Bill Monroe. What came out of them was a was a raw, pure, authentic talent that was so mesmerizing that the rest of the world is still trying to copy it, and I don't know if we're getting close or not. But I don't know how to answer your question about it, except for the fact that he's probably one of the most copied musicians in the world. And that very core sound that those guys did in 1946 there has just remained, by and large, intact. Some, I mean, we got young bands now that are trying to play that music Really close, but we've also got some great bands that are doing some some really progressive, cool stuff. I mean, as a banjo player, Noam Pikelny is so far advanced that I don't understand what he's doing sometimes. That's how remarkable he is. in Bayla taking the banjo into jazz things and stuff. So there's something out there for everybody.
1: And you mentioned Noam. I mean, you can even look at a band like the Punch Brothers. They're so progressive and so forward thinking but at the core it's still the same five instruments that they used in 1945 it which make you know what that's what, that's something that makes this music so unique you know s- someone may add a drum or a second fiddle or someone you know may add a dobro of course but at the core that's that sound is still the same no matter what direction anybody wants yeah. to take it which makes this music very unique even when you look at some a, a roots music like country. Fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. Has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great too. The best part is Samson's Hair Care is a partner with an organization called Life Water. Samson's donates a portion of every purchase to help provide clean drinking water to families in Africa. How cool is that? Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary and now yours can be too. Samsonshaircare.com. Code Bluegrass at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's Samsonshaircare.com. Code Bluegrass.
3: And now back to Walls of Time.
1: What do you think that the father of bluegrass would think of the state of today's bluegrass music scene?
2: Quite honestly, if he had a song to plug the String Dusters or or the Punch Brothers, he'd be in the dressing room trying to show it to them. Really? Yeah. Uh, I never did see him really, you know, Sam Bush used to tell the story about Bill asking him what was the name of that music they were playing, and he said Newgrass, and Bill said, yeah, I hate that. I think that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I know how excited when the Kentucky Headhunters recorded one of Bill's songs. He was all about that. So I think he encouraged people to be creative. In fact, he's actually told people, you can't play like me. You need to play the way you play. So that tells me that he embraced whatever direction it went. He wanted to keep what he was doing in a a certain realm because that's where his fans were and he didn't want to disappoint them. In fact, this will be an interesting conversation if you can get uh, Peter Rowan on your uh, uh, show sometime. Bill always said that he had a completely different music in his head, but he couldn't show it to anybody because his fans would not like it. Peter Rowan, was he was talking about that in the 60s when Peter was with him, and Peter was trying to extract some information, you know, about what it was. And he said, well, I mean, does it have a Hawaiian guitar in it? And Bill said, well, it it could have. You know, he was real vague about it, but... But I, I don't think Bill would have put the brakes on anything as far as, as creativity. I really don't.
1: How do you think, you know, some of, the, some of the figures that you were around and spent time with, how do you think folks like Monroe and Lester Flat and we mentioned Benny Martin, Curly Seckler, you know, when you look at a, a musical act today, if you can create an album, you think in your head, you know, maybe if everything goes right, in 40 years someone will listen to this and it'll make an impact. How do you think that Monroe and Flat and Scruggs and all those guys carried the mantle knowing every note that I make on stage and on record matters and is gonna impact someone now and forever. You know, everyone is gonna study the father of bluegrass. Everyone's gonna study Earl Scruggs. How do you think that that you know, you mentioned that he had music in his head that because he knew right. the the uh, the impact everything he played had, um, he wouldn't share it because yeah. he knew how it could change the history of this music. How do you think that they carried that mantle?
2: Put quite simply, Lester Flat told me one time. He said they call the tunes that I wrote classics, or uh, you know, instrumental and. In, just being the greatest tunes ever. And he said, all I was trying to do was come up with something different for our band to record. And that's, that's we get back to that fact. They were just doing what came out of them. That was their natural created ability to do what they were doing. I don't think they studied about that mantle too much because it, it's sort of like playing baseball. You've got a hundred shows to do this year. You've got a little date book here. You've got to get to that show and accomplish that show and sell your CDs. When you get on the bus, Lester used to take a pencil and scratch that one off. And it's like playing baseball; it doesn't matter if you hit a home run the last at bat. You're looking for the next gig. So I think they were just doing what they loved to do and what naturally came out of them. I don't think they carried the weight of being a, a Hall of Fame trendsetter. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: As Monroe started to age and started coming to the point where when did you first notice that Monroe was thinking that it might be time to retire?
2: I don't think that ever occurred to him. Really? In fact, there was a, there was a point in time in the mid eighties that buddy Lee uh, convinced him to do a farewell tour and we would show up with posters, and newspapers and people coming out to say we understand this is your last year it's been billed as your farewell tour and bill would answer by saying well those there's some people down at nashville that really want me to quit and they really want me to come off the road he never admitted he, <laughs> he was never retiring was, or yeah. quitting he never did was he never did buy into it yeah he, i mean i mean if you look at ralph and earl and all those guys they played till they could not play and and I just don't think it ever occurred. To you
1: don't him. think it ever occurred to him?
2: No, I think he thought that he was going to use his willpower and his strength and and whatever facilities he could to be a strive uh, to be viable and and playing and going and traveling because that was their pure, pure joy. Uh, a lot of your old country stars, when they got home in Nashville, uh, sort of led a sad existence because all of their accolades and 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 attention they got and all the respect they got was on the road yeah you know and a lot of them were not the best at managing money but i just don't think that it ever occurred to those guys that that they wasn't going to be playing the opry and they wasn't going to be out doing shows and they loved it that much
1: to you as a as a young man what were some of the most impactful things that you saw your heroes do or experience, whether that be good or bad?
2: Well, that's a good question. Uh, I know that I had aspirations for, for working with Lester Flatt and Bill Monroe when I was learning to play. And I told some people I probably should have set my goals higher because I would accomplished that by the time I was 24. But uh it really it really hit me hard when Lester died because not only was he my boss and my job, but he was one of my heroes, and I realized that he died just like we all are. I think that was a very profound moment for me
1: How old were you when Lester passed away?
2: Well, let's see in seventy nine I would have been twenty four yeah, I, I went to work with him just before I turned 24, and I was still 24 when he passed away in May of '79. So I remember having those thoughts that uh, uh, you got to really pay attention to that because uh, no matter what you do in this world, you know there's a there's an end coming. So, and I was always raised with faith and uh, and with Christian beliefs, and and uh, that just solidified them for me because. Uh, you can talk to all you want to about the heroes music and music and, and the Hall of Fame and the most creative people in the world. But uh, David Harvey, a great mandolin player, great luthier, said to me one time, he said, I, when I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me how many mandolin tunes I wrote. So at that point, playing music became more of a job to me than than just uh, a deep burning desire. Some people say music is my life, and I don't. I don't buy into that. Uh, music. Music really is a job, and you have to love it, and you have to make sacrifices to do it. But you really got to keep it into perspective too. Uh, Bill Monroe was uh, a good-hearted person that would anybody that ever asked him to do a benefit show, he would do it. We would be there. I mean we raised money for church fans and we've helped people that were sick. Uh, he was he was a good-hearted guy. Don't think he really worried a whole lot about money. Uh as long as he had him some good pie and a, and a, and a good food and got a mandolin going and and uh, some of his buddies around, he was cool, but he could have probably managed his money a, a little bit better and been a little bit happier in his lat, latter years, but You know, as far as saying what they did different or good or bad, they were just people, just like everybody else, you know, at their very core.
1: Why do you think it's important to remember that our heroes and the legend of this music were still just human beings and individuals just like the rest of us?
2: I heard a preacher say one time that everybody is going to worship something. And I truly believe that it's man's job to worship God and to believe that Jesus came here for a reason. And and the sacrifices and the laws that he put into place are to save our souls. And the most important question a person can ever ask is, what shall I do to be saved? So you need to always remember that uh, in any music or any sport or In anything in your life that is that that is more important to you than your relationship with God is not going to end well. So don't put all your stock in the football team or the or the star or the money or the job or anything else, because uh, we're all going to be down here doing the best we can to make a living and to make an impact and to to be good to our families and our friends and do all the good things we can. But we got about 80 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If we're lucky. Yeah, (laughs) That's
2: right. And I have been blessed that I have got to be in the presence of some people that have created some pretty remarkable stuff and, and that I could call a lot of them, my friends. And, and as long as I'm alive, people will want to talk to me about my days with Bill and Lester. But, uh, and what they did was incredible, too, but uh, just to keep your eye on the main prize.
1: You, you said when you were a young man that uh, Lester's passing really kind of made his morality kind of sink in a little bit more. Was there a particular moment when you were with Monroe, that, the reminder that he's just a man just like the rest of us kind of sink in?
2: There was uh, – by the time I went to work with Bill in 1981, he had already went through uh, colon cancer. Uh, he had some times on the road in the latter years. For example, when we went to uh, Japan on one of our tours, the time delay, the, the crossing the international time zone, the effect of dehydration and his medication, uh, Marty Stewart was playing on a show over there with Roger Miller that we were on and uh, they called and Marty was with Bill and a nurse was with Bill and a translator and they said, Bill's backstage and he's delirious. And so I went over there to where he was at and uh, they had him covered up in blankets and he was just shivering all over. And they, the Japanese doctors wanted to give him some fluids because they were had determined he was dehydrated, you know, and I tried everything within my ability to get him to go with those doctors and do that. And he refused to let him do it. And he kept saying, I'll go see the doctor tomorrow when we get home. And I said, Bill, we're not going to be home tomorrow. You know, we're in Japan. Well, he was he was running a little bit of a temperature. He was dehydrated. Make a long story short, he really didn't let him do anything to help him. And within the next hour, Bill Monroe bowed his legs, put his mantle on, walked out there and played an hour's show flawlessly. Call it willpower, call it whatever you want to, but, but you know, there was, there was instances where we were on the road that Bill probably should have went to a hospital. There was times we took him to a hospital and he didn't stay. So there was a lot of reminders along the way that, that, you know, he was, he was struggling and aging, but, uh, by and large, it was pretty remarkable. He was 70 years old when I went to work for him. Yeah. So my my tenure with Bill for 10 years was between him being 70 and 80. And yeah. if you look at our road schedule from that time, it's amazing. We were never off. If we weren't on the road, we were playing the Opry. If we weren't playing the Opry, we were recording or doing a benefit show. I mean, it, it, it was pretty phenomenal. There was a lot of summers that we were on the road you know 15 to 18 days a month and a lot of that was one one festival at a time so he the 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 physicality of it all and 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 uh, the age was taking its toll on bill but i left in 81 dana Cup played and stayed with bill until i think bill passed in 96 i believe so he still continued to perform right up just almost to the end yeah.
1: were you with bill when he recorded My Last Days on Earth.
2: No, that was on the Master of Bluegrass album. That was uh, Butch Robbins okay. that Okay, my apologies. It was released just months before I went to work okay. with him. Okay, I knew 81. it was really yeah.
1: really close, so okay.
2: So here we went and playing old Ebenezer Scrooge and right, yeah. right on My Last Days on Earth and Lockwood and all those things. And it's funny... Uh, Butch played some break on one of those tunes that Bill didn't like and he just pulled he just pulled Butch out of the mix. He didn't ask him to redo it. They never fixed it. There's just a hole in that song. <laughs> so yeah. But it was uh, it's pretty interesting, you know. Bill Bill's mandolin playing changed through the years too. His his style in the '50s and what he was playing in the '80s was a complete different style.
1: Yeah, like that Masters of Bluegrass album in particular. Not only "My Last Days on Earth," which is just such a masterpiece, but you mentioned "Old Ebenezer Scrooge," which is such a cool tune. Yeah. Um, stylistically, they're
2: very progressive. Yeah. Yeah, and Absolutely. a lot of minors and and majors uh, in these tunes, and and uh, a lot of you,
1: some unique tunings. Yeah, and, yeah. The,
2: uh, My last days on earth. I guess he just got up in the middle of the night one night and couldn't sleep, and and happened upon this this tuning, and uh, I think it was like in C sharp minor or something, and and it's just real real eerie, you know.
1: What are some ways that you think Bill Monroe was misunderstood? both musically and personally.
2: The one thing I noticed as a bluegrass boy is when we were out on the road, there would be maybe a fan or another person in a band would come to the bus or to the record table and say, Oh, could you ask Bill Monroe if he would such and such? And I'd say, well, why don't you just knock on the door? He's sitting there playing solitaire or whatever and ask him and Oh, no, no, no. I could never do that. I think that people had such a – I think when people are around a huge star and in their in their eyes Bill Monroe was such a star that they were afraid of him a little bit. But Bill was real approachable. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people, since since there was so many Bluegrass Boys through the years – Uh, There's a list, by the way, somewhere. I think I was 135 or 137 or something. But I think because there were so many bluegrass boys through the years, a lot of people thought Bill Monroe was hard to work for. Um, I don't think that was the case. I think that Bill Monroe had certain things he expected and required, and I think that a lot of people probably didn't want to to meet those guidelines. There's always personality conflicts and things like that, but – I guess, honestly, I, I didn't find Bill Monroe hard to work for. Uh, so I think that was probably a misconception. Um, Lester Flat, what you saw on stage is basically what you got. He was easygoing, laid back, one of the best MCs in the world. And uh, I think people just loved Lester because he connected with him not only through his songs he wrote and his music and his singing, but but his, his great uh, approachable, home-style MC work.
1: Do you think that Munro's approachability something that really helps set the set the tone for that aspect of the bluegrass music genre here? What sixty, seventy years later?
2: I wouldn't be surprised if we're one of the only and one of the certainly few musics that that the bands get right off the stage and go visit uh, the artist and the fans. Uh, But looking at it from another perspective, J.D. Crowe one time said that we're one of the few musics in the world that the beginners and the professionals share the same stage. So there within itself is a uniqueness. Um, It's it's family oriented. It's it's fantastic, supercharged live entertainment. It has something for everybody. It connects with people that love gospel music, with people that love square dance music with people that love good harmonies, with people that love good picking, and songs that have a message. And so it's a good environment for people to take their kids to, to festivals. It's a good place to make friends and to jam and to to, to plan to see year after year. And so it's um uh, it's like going to a family reunion except everybody likes one another, you know? <laughs>
1: It was a real treat to get to visit with Blake Williams on this episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I'm Daniel Mullen sitting down with our co-producer, Ty Gilpin, to dive in to this cool episode, The Sparta Flash. This was actually the first episode we recorded uh, backstage at the Southern Ohio Indoor Music Festival when we decided we were going to be uh, making this podcast. Blake Williams one of the first people I called. Uh, I've always loved listening to Blake's stories. Uh, he is, just has such a reputation as one of the uh, the best storytellers in bluegrass.
0: He also has great jokes.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> if, you see, if you see Blake out and about at IBMA or somewhere else, ask him to tell you a good banjo joke. He's the best. <laughs> banjo jokes especially. Oh,
1: yeah. He's, he's been around so many of the legends, as we tied into in this episode. But between his stories of the road, stories from the Opry, his jokes, his humor, that's one reason he has such a reputation as one of the best MCs at bluegrass festivals across the country
0: as well. Right, and you know this. This is a great example of what this podcast is going to be about. You know, it's uh, hearing some of the stories, some of the history uh, from the people who were right there—the first generation of the players. if, you, if you're a banjo player or banjo fan, pay attention to some of his influences and the names that he mentioned. These are the people to look up—not uh, always the household names, but just the great influencers of the genre. Um, I love when these folks reference who their early influences were. Yeah, great stories here. Uh, I love the story about uh, Monroe writing Sugarloaf Mountain basically off the cuff and Blake being able to remember it and bring it back up during a recording session. It ended up being the title cut. I thought that was such a cool cool thing and an insight uh, into how Monroe thought and just being present in the moment of creativity.
1: Well, and the way that Munro was just so creative, that off the cuff, th- these tunes just flowed out of him like a waterfall, and Blake was uh, alert enough and astute enough to catch them as they were falling down and, and remember them. Because I'm sure that there's dozens, if not hundreds, of songs like that that Munro would just be sitting around, make up some little tune, and you know, kind of just forget about it
0: yeah, it's a great analogy, Daniel. I love uh, how you were able to get some insight from Blake about Monroe's musical vision. It's really clever.
1: It was fascinating for me to get to to hear these stories from Blake about, how Munro was so revered by his fellow musicians, whether that is in the studio with folks like Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings on that really cool uh, collaborative album that Munro put out during Blake's time, or even the story about Ray Charles just knocked me out. I never heard that before, but when you have someone that is as much of an icon of, as Ray Charles that is quick to tip their cap and show reverence to Bill Monroe. It, it really helps for today's generation to see how big of a deal Bill Monroe was in his time.
0: Yeah, great story there. And I love the comparing and contrasting Lester Flatt and Bill Monroe as band leaders. That was uh, that was cool to hear, too.
1: Especially since they had worked together. You know, of course, Lester had worked for Bill. I, I almost wonder if, if Lester... Uh, after having worked for Bill, decided he wanted to do things just a little bit differently when it comes to how uh, he ran a band. Uh, I guess we can't ask him directly, but I think it's safe to draw that conclusion.
0: Yeah, it's just a a neat contrast, talking about how Flat put on a a show, and Monroe's show almost uh, more than anything was his presence, and as Blake said, letting the music speak for itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you invent a genre of music, I think you can, you can afford to just let the music speak for itself, right?
0: Yeah, totally, great stuff. And uh, you're gonna hear even more about this. In fact, at uh, our next episode with uh, Peter Rowan, you're gonna hear even more insight into Monroe's thought process, his creative process, uh, how he channeled music, um, and uh, it's actually it's really great. Peter gets uh, and talks and mystical language about monroe's connection to uh, music uh, his mandolin and the kind of songs that he wrote
1: that's one thing that i like about this podcast is we're getting opinions and thoughts and recollections straight from people themselves it's their opinions and their thoughts not not necessarily ours so i i love that you know blake Peter, we speak to Sonny later on, uh, all former Bluegrass boys that all have differing perspectives and different takes and different experiences when it comes to working with or being around or analyzing Bill Monroe. Uh, This is just one instance where uh, it's fun to showcase these different perspectives and opinions as part of what makes Bluegrass so great. Um, some of the conclusions that, that Blake and Peter draw on these back-to-back episodes are similar, but they might be from different angles. So I think p- folks will really enjoy uh, hearing uh, Peter dive into a, a little more on Bill Monroe and what made the father of bluegrass such an uh, important and interesting figure in American music.
0: That's right. So stream us again next episode with peter rowan
1: be sure to follow us on social media on facebook and instagram at walls of time podcast and on twitter at walls of time pod you can find us online as well our website Walls wallsoftimepodcast.com we also have an email address shoot an email it goes to, to ty and i both it's info at Walls com. if you have any questions thoughts comments or uh, any stories you'd like to share uh, feel free to let us know well, I think we, we might even do a Q&A episode later on in the season to answer any of your questions. So info at wallsoftimepodcast.com.
0: And also be sure to rate the podcast, subscribe, and share with a friend so we can get more listeners and hopefully turn even more people on to bluegrass music and hear these great stories about the legends of and from the legends in bluegrass.
1: We'll be back next time on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast with Peter Rowan. Thanks for listening.
3: Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.